This episode of the Paddock Pass Podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Clip-On Handlebars. Premium race-spec clip-ons developed by some of the world's fastest riders. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass Podcast brought to you by Renthal Street. Check out renthal.com for chains, sprockets and lots of other parts for your motorcycle. On today's podcast, we've got a gap in MotoGP race weekends, and we've got a, a good gap filler on this week's pod. We've got the chance to sit down with Claudio Domenicali from Ducati, and uh, Adam and David went out to see him in Italy only a couple of weeks ago. So, Adam, I'm going to come straight to you, Mr. Two Sundays in a Week with MXGP and MotoGP. What, what's going to happen this week, Ad? There's no racing for you. Uh, I'm not too sure what I'm going to do, Steve, to be honest. Uh, I'm sure my family will be glad to have my undivided attention and it's coming to the end of the football and basketball seasons uh, for my kids. So that will be the plan, I think. But uh, there's still things going on, isn't there, in the racing world, and whether it's kind of injuries or uh, contract signatures or whatever else there's there's still plenty to talk about and um and we'll set the scene for our interview with uh Ducati CEO Claudio Domenicali as well Steve uh, like you said Dave and I were over in Bologna we did that quick I think it was after Portimao wasn't it Dave uh, the first Grand Prix season yeah so we managed to quickly jump on a plane from Portugal to Italy and um it was great because we had a tour of the, the factory as well but we'll explain more about that in a minute Obviously, I've mentioned that Adam works two Sundays a week usually. Dave, there is actually two nine o'clocks on each day. But uh, <laughs> you're up a little bit earlier than usual today to get yourself ready for the pod. But uh, Adam mentioned there about the, the trip to Bologna. The Ducati Factory is a, a pretty cool trip as well, actually. And there's a lot that's that's there for fans as well, the museum and different things. Yeah, I mean, if you're in Bologna, well, first of all, Bologna is just a fantastic city to visit, visit anyway. Uh, if you like your food, then it's, um, uh, uh, I think it's generally regarded as, as like the centre of Italian cuisine. Um, and I have always uh, uh, eaten exceptionally well there, so there's a good reason to go, even if you're not a bike fan. Uh, the Ducati Museum is really interesting. The, the tour is really interesting in, uh, as well. Just seeing how they actually build the motorcycle, um, uh, the, the process that goes goes into it and all the rest of it so yeah really enjoyed it they still let dave into um italy and into bologna despite his discrimination against certain italian desserts <laughs> so um i didn't bring it up actually while we we're at Giacati because i didn't want people to think negatively of him negatively of you ad let's be honest about this you would have been guilty by association there as well neil morrison joined us on the pod as usual again and uh, neil the last time i saw you you were just about to tuck into a massive bag of onion bhajee on a train to Belfast. Exactly, Steve. I had a weekend back in Northern Ireland, stopped off in Dublin along the way and uh, met up with yourself, which was the first meeting in, what, a week? We've, uh, we've had uh, <laughs> a bit of um, brotherly bonding overload in the last couple of weeks with uh, Superbikes in Catalonia and a trip to Dublin. So, yeah, very pleasant indeed. And, um, yeah, like, uh, like I had looking ahead at the week ahead with a free weekend and um, plotting what to do. Lots to think about, but uh, we've got lots to talk about on the pod as well today. And let's go straight into Ducati. Obviously, this is effectively a Ducati special with the Domenicali interview, but not so special for Ducati's lead rider, Neil, with the news that Pekka Bagnaia has a bit of an injury going into the Italian Grand Prix. Yeah, exactly, Steve. Um, I don't think it's anything massively serious. Ducati were certainly trying to play it down when they released some news on, on Sunday. We're recording on Monday. So they uh, sent out an update yesterday. Um, they said that um, he was suffering some pain in his right ankle after that crash. 
um, with Maverick Vinales at Le Mans. Um, initially, didn't think it was anything, um, but went away and had some tests, and they found a, a small partial fracture in the uh, the talus bone in the ankle, which can be quite uh, can be quite nasty. Um, they say that um, they're absolutely sure that it won't. Uh, prevent Peko from participating um, at Mugello the second weekend in June, which is uh, about three weeks away. Um, so, yeah, he's going to be spending the next couple of weeks trying to trying to recover from that. But, um, yeah, quite a nasty little injury. I remember the uh, um, a, a partial fracture to that bone. Um, maybe doesn't sound so serious, but, um, yeah, that's uh, obviously the right ankle has a lot to do. So, um, yeah, Peko will be hoping that that heals up quicker than uh, as quick as possible. He has got a long time to recover. Um, if it was a fracture in the talus, uh, you know, it, it it will heal. It is manageable. Uh, it, it's just uh, it's more likely to hamper his training than anything else. Um, uh, I, I think he's likely to be fit. Uh, you know, or well, certainly easily a- able to ride. And of course, Ducati at Mugello. Uh, they have a reasonable record there, I would say. So I would say that there's a, there's going to be a lot of pressure on him to actually score a good result. It's going to be a very, very important to have a good result there. Uh, not just for his championship, but also because it's Ducati, because it's his home race. Um, the, the Ducati goes around, the, goes well around there. So it, yes, it should be an interesting weekend. Adam, obviously, just to go back to the Domenicali interview that we'll have at the end of the show after the break, what was your big takeaways from sitting down with him? Um, First of all, Steve, two things about Bagnaia. Um, You know, firstly, I think it's a reminder that, you know, even when these guys have a relatively slow speed crash, I guess you could say, I mean, it was still a a big impact with Mignales in Le Mans. You know, they're carrying sort of physical problems all the time. And we saw Bagnaia come back on the scooter with Vinales um, and also going to the pit box. Everything seemed fine. You know, I, I think it is a reminder to race fans that these guys carry sort of, if not the scars, then certainly the bumps and bruises, you know, well after sort of impacts in motorcycle racing. The safety aspect of MotoGP now is, is so good. And you see how well the leathers and the helmets and everything else perform. You tend to forget that, you know, these guys actually get really bashed around. So um, I think it's important to remember that. And secondly, what what do we think about, you know, the furor surrounding Bagnaia and those comments about, you know, the inequality needed again in race machinery in MotoGP? Um, I had some sympathy with him. He said his comments were taken out of context. Um, you know, it was slightly unusual to see the series promoters kind of pushing the angle. Uh, you know, you can imagine Ducati top brass were probably not too amused to see their rider at the, the subject of a, a bit of an internet whirlwind. Um, but I did have some sympathy with Bagnaia because, you know, I think we want the races to be able to express opinions. We want them to be able to, you know, uh, not worry about have, having their comments um, sliced and, and presented in, you know, various media formats, um, as, you know, it happens in most sports these days. Uh, so, you know, I, I think Bagnaia was slightly harshly done by there just for having an opinion on the current state of MotoGP. Yeah, I think it's one of those situations where, like you said, we want our riders and our athletes to express themselves. But also the last thing that anyone wants them to do is to actually express themselves because then there's the chance just to knock them down. And that's where there's the balance that's needed. I think Peko's comments, they weren't that bad in a lot of ways, but it's also a case of this is the MotoGP life that everyone has to lead now. Everything is close. If you're on a satellite bike, an independent bike, you've still got a chance of winning races. We've seen that this year. That wasn't the case 
five, ten years ago, it was it was always the case of just the factory riders able to win races and the cream gets the top. So a Pekabagnaya, a world champion, a Quattararo, Marquez, whoever it was, would always end up on the factory seats. But it would be a case of you were then up against the other factory riders to try and win a race and challenge for a championship. Now you have to think about 15 other riders. I would have been interested if Peko was so concerned about the safety elements if he was still on the Pramac bike and it was a half second off the pace. But I thought that, like you said, like with the just the, the sheer size of the storm that came from it, Hervé Poncheral discussing it as well, it probably was just a storm in a teacup that just got completely overblown. I think it was um, certain comments presented in a certain light to Hervé Poncherat, which was always going to re- uh, create a reaction. And then, the, and from there, it all sort of spiralled out of control. I think it was also a little bit of uh, um, Pecco explaining himself, or not explaining himself as clearly as he might in, in Italian, because it did come from his Italian uh, debrief. In his English debrief, he said something similar, but he didn't say that, you know, look, we need this advantage. He, he, he was much clearer about it being, you know, look, it's just the way it is. You know, we used to have an advantage, but we don't have the uh, have the advantage anymore. Um, but the reason for this is really quite simple. The reason is we have uh, ride height devices, especially the ride height devices, um, aerodynamics to a larger uh, degree as well. It makes it much, much more difficult to overtake. Um, and that has created a massive problem in terms of, uh, in terms of passing, it's putting all of the pressure on those first few laps. So basically, the more pressure there is on those uh, on those sort of you know first three or four laps, the more likely there's going to be uh, crashes and accidents. You can't sit there and bide your time and wait. I mean, just to explain to to the listeners about media debriefs, I mean, sometimes they can be quite intimate. You know, you'll have a rider talking to maybe three or four or five journalists. Other times, you'll have say like the case with Fabio Quattararo and Le Mans, you'll have 20 to 30 people trying to squeeze around a table to hear what he has to say. Um, this year, there have been a couple of riders who have been filmed, um, Alessia Spargaro, Bagnaia, Quattararo, uh, Jack Miller, just to name a couple, who I think have been followed by TV cameras when they come to these sort of debrief sessions. And, you know, I think if if media or certainly, you know, Dorna, uh, the series promoters are going to start putting you know, kind of the comments that emerge from these little sessions on social media, then, you know, you have to look to the kind of exposition that Quattararo gave in Le Mans, where he basically said Yamaha were fucked. Uh, you know, that there was no uh, discernible positive attributes to the current guys of the M1 and he was struggling. I mean, if you put that up there, then that's a really bad look for, you know, Yamaha, the team, the company. And, you know, that's, but it's also... Um, juicy content, I guess you could say. So where do you draw the line? Um, because this, uh, observation that Bagnaya gave of current MotoGP was interesting. I mean, it's interesting that because he's the world champion, it's interesting because he's probably the pace setter as we know. But then there's, there's also a lot of other stuff. I mean, Alessia Spargaro, guys, as we know, is somebody who's particularly vocal, always had a, has an opinion on something. Um, you know, we, I think the debris could be mined for this kind of like sensationalism. And do we want to see it? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the point is that uh, media debriefs, I mean, 
they take lots of different forms, but usually there's sort of like a coherent narrative. Questions will all, they'll often be sort of follow-on questions. You know, so one journalist will ask one question, another journalist will sort of uh, listen to that, think of something, and think, well, yeah, well, what about this? Uh, and so you get a much more coherent picture uh, for it, which is what, you know, like the job of a journalist is, is to explain what's going on. Um, whereas what seems to be happening is we are just, you know, getting the, uh, uh, getting the quote and, and turning it into clickbait, which is, you know, it's always happened. Um, it's what people go for. People read the headlines rather than the articles. Um, uh, and it's much easier to sell with it, with those sort of things. Um, but I would say that, um, uh, the only, well, the real irony I found behind the whole, the, the whole thing is, about Peko complaining, or well, Peko saying, you know, they used to be the advantage that the factory bikes and the other bikes hadn't, is that the, one of the reasons that the racing is also close is because of all of the innovate, technical innovations which Ducati had bought. You know, like Ducati had bought these ride height devices. They were the first with the ride height devices. They were the first to really dive into and explore the advantages that um, aerodynamics have. And uh, so it's sort of, he's, uh, Ducati have created the problem that Peko is suffering from. Yeah, and I think it's it's always interesting, David. Like you mentioned there about the developments Ducati made, that's always been the case. But whenever you've got eight bikes out in the grid, all at that high level, it just creates this field that we have now, and it puts everyone under a lot of pressure. Just to go back though to the the debriefs, I always think it's quite interesting that in the past, like whenever I first arrived into the paddock, there was never anything that would be recorded from, from a debrief that wasn't for print media. And then that all changed after Sepang 2015 when we suddenly had all of the the debriefs being recorded, relayed live by Dorna. And then that's happened a little bit on a few other occasions. And now they're just trying to, to edge into that. And it's a very dangerous one because I always look at it that obviously like whenever I'm in a World Superbike race, I'm, I'm there working for Dorna and I've got my job to do. But I also look at it that Gordo is there to do his job. He spends a lot of money to make sure that he gets to all the rounds and we get the benefit of that because we get his insight in the podcast and his readers get the benefit of that because he's the one that's boots on the ground for pretty much every round in world superbikes for the last 25 years but suddenly if you know it could be the the bautista press conference in barcelona it was only to announce he was signing a one-year contract but if those kind of things are broadcast suddenly gordo loses some of what makes him unique in the paddock and that's the the slippery slope that you're that you you have to kind of tread on and it's a big challenge because like adam said you're looking for the juicy content and then you're also trying to make sure that you're able to grow the series and you grow the series with content that comes from moto matters or on track off road or you know the magazines neil works for because suddenly it's organic content that is needed for it so it's it's a tough tough balancing for that but just to move on to probably the, the next biggest news that we have in racing, Top Rack Razgadioglu has announced that he's going to leave Yamaha and go to BMW. We actually talked about it on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, myself and Gordo. But I'm quite curious to see what you guys think of it because Top Rack going to BMW on the surface looks like the the biggest mistake a rider could make. So I'm quite curious to see what the three of you think of it. Obviously, there was talk that Top Rack could move to MotoGP, potentially. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a quite an interesting change of uh, change of heart because Toprak, I think, gave an interview about a month ago to Speedweek, the the German uh, website, in which he said that his goal for next year was to to go to MotoGP. Yamaha obviously organised a, a test for him at uh, at Hareth when he was riding alongside Kyle Crutchlow um, over two days. Um, but it quickly became clear, I think, at the the American Grand Prix or the Grand Prix of the Americas that Yamaha didn't see top rack in their MotoGP plans for 2024 and um, they weren't explicitly saying that but they were reading between the lines it was clear that they felt his lap times weren't strong enough to to warrant a, an immediate switch across to the MotoGP paddock and I was speaking to you Steve um you know you're obviously speaking to people in in the World Superbike paddock it sounds like top rack didn't have all the tools at his disposal to make that MotoGP um, test a total success um, and you just wonder whether that has maybe had a, a slight impact on his decision to move to to BMW and World Superbike. Um, you know, I saw Andrea Dossoli from Yamaha's World Superbike program yesterday saying that they had made a, a really competitive offer for the top rack, and it is believed that he will be getting a sizable increase in wage from BMW. But yeah, I find it quite strange just because you've seen Mark, uh, Michael Vandermark and Scott Redding in recent years move from Yamaha and Ducati, really competitive rides, to BMW and just really struggling. Um, I know Reading had a little bit of success with BMW last year, a couple of podiums, a couple of decent rides. Vandermark had a win um, in, two, I think, 2021. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, I have to say it's quite a puzzling one. Um, and you do wonder whether the the checkbook is, is really what, what convinced him to make that move. Yeah, I agree with you there, Neil. I think, you know, the wages has to be a big part of it. Um, you know, top rack is not, we're not talking about a 21, 22 year old racer, you know, kind of really in the spring of his career as well. Perhaps he's just decided he wants to make some money. I thought it was interesting as well in his quote where he said, um, he had an offer to go to MotoGP. Uh, you know, I wonder sort of what, uh, avenue or opportunity that was I mean as we've discussed on the podcast before riding an M1 or racing an M1 in MotoGP at the moment doesn't look that appealing um, you know Frankie Morbidelli I think there's a big question mark over his future Fabio Quattararo is one of if not the most talented rider aside from Mark Marquez in MotoGP and you know what kind of situation is he finding himself in at the moment um, I just uh, I, I just want I mean Dave I know on various occasions, you've said to people that BMW do not go MotoGP racing because they um, get the required exposure from sort of bare minimum investment, really. I mean, they're involved in MotoGP when it comes to safety cars and various other models. Um, but you have to wonder if, if, if Top Rack goes there and, you know, bombs or, you know, kind of sort of fades away, like we've seen several high profile riders done, the, the names of which Steve has mentioned. I mean, surely this is kind of negative PR for BMW, isn't it? Uh, well, yes, but the, I mean, the popularity of the World Superbike series is much less than the popularity of the MotoGP series. So it's, it's a safer place to bomb, if you like. Um, <laughs> and there's certainly at the moment, the BMW Superbike program seems to be the most efficient way to turn money into disappointment. Um, but it, I'd say it's Honda's actually the most efficient way. Oh, yeah, yeah, but possibly, but you know, it's a, it's a tightly fought, it's a tightly fought race. Yeah. I mean, like, it, in terms of BMW going to MotoGP, uh, for for BMW to go to MotoGP, they'd have to spend 
something in the region of 30 million a year for a year, maybe two before they even entered the series. Then they'd need to spend 50 million a year, at least 50 uh, every year. And I would be willing to bet that they are, that their sponsorship is a lot less uh, than, you know, 50 or 60 million a year for the safety cars and the, uh, the, what is it? The BMW M award and all the rest of the stuff which they get. I mean, because, you know, before every race, you see two BMW cars and a BMW bike lined up on the grid at the front of the grid. Um, uh, it, it's all over the place. You know, there's BMW signage all around the all around the circuits, um, and there is the BMW VIP uh, uh, sort of hospitality thing where they invite guests in. Um, so they, you know, they're getting a lot of, a lot of return from that. And I think they would be getting much more return from that than from actually, uh, trying to race and, and running around in a, a bit like KTM did in the first couple of seasons, uh, you know, r- running around desperately hoping to get into the, to, into the top 15, especially right now. Uh, with the uh, with how close the front of the field is, I think it, I think it'd be very uh, very very difficult. Um, as far as Toprak is concerned, I would have been interested to see Toprak on a KTM um, uh, or even on because I think that that bike would have suited him much much more. It would have suited his, his riding style a lot better. But his riding style was absolutely not uh, suitable to the Yamaha M1. You know the way of braking, the way of carrying the corner speed, all the rest of it. What he wants to do is is get the thing on its nose into the corner and then uh, and then come out again and the Yamaha was just absolutely antithetical to the way that he rides a motorbike yeah I, I think just to go back to the Hareth test Neil mentioned it and we saw in the aftermath of that that Yamaha didn't basically build a bike that was capable of housing a six foot tall rider so Toprak wasn't comfortable on the bike so he went to that test and immediately saw that he wasn't going to get in his eyes a fair crack at it and it reminded me at the time, and I said it at the time, it reminded me a lot of when he went to the Suzuka test for Kawasaki. Everyone talks about him not racing the Kawasaki at Suzuka, and that's what made up his mind to leave Kawasaki. The decision had already been made because on the Sunday morning in Suzuka, he signed his contract with Yamaha. He had already seen that he had been disrespected at a test when Jonathan Ray and I think it was Leon Haslam was his teammate that year. It was Haslam and Ray were the number one and two and Toprak was very firmly the number three rider and he couldn't understand or accept that and that was the re- the real reason, the root of the reason why he left Kawasaki. Obviously the eight hours not racing then was a final nail in the coffin but the deal was already done before that. Toprak's a very sensitive rider that needs to feel that he's loved, needs to feel that he's the number one and I think that after the MotoGP test he suddenly saw that Maybe he's the number one in the eyes of Andrea Dossoli or whoever else, but not in the eyes of Yamaha. And that's why a new challenge, a new opportunity was something he wanted to look at. And then whenever the, like, and it was a Brinks truck from Munich that's been dropped over to, to Turkey firm, that definitely turned his head. And we were talking about it in the Catalan show and on the Catalan TV broadcast about the fact that suddenly that weekend, Toprak was was very aware of the money that was on the table and it's money that you may not win back if you if you were to sign for another contract so it's a business decision as much as anything else Toprak's managed by Keenan and Keenan was always one of the highest paid riders in the superbike paddock even when he was just a supersport rider so Toprak has seen the the wealth that Keenan has 
And you'd have to then think, you know what? I'm as good as Keenan or I'm better than Keenan. I've won a Superbike Championship. I want a piece of that. I want the big house. I want the the flash cars. And, you know, it's it's natural for that to become part of your decision-making process. I also think that with the BMW, everyone will talk about it's going to be very difficult for him to win on it. It is going to be difficult to win on it. But when he moved to Yamaha, everyone said he, he can't win on the Yamaha. It doesn't suit his riding style. And he was able to win first time out. Toprak's a very talented rider. If he's able to to bring Phil Maron across with him, if he's able to bring the team around him that he needs, he can make that BMW successful as well. It's interesting um, what you were saying there, Steve. Also, I think it's interesting where this leaves Yamaha for their second MotoGP seat because obviously Toprak was never realistically in the running despite him making it known that he was kind of interested in moving across to, to MotoGP. Um, you know, a couple of weeks ago, it was fair to assume that Yamaha would just turn their attentions to Jorge Martin. Um, but Paolo Chiabatti from Ducati made a, a pretty outspoken comment in Le Mans where he said he was fairly sure that um, you know Yamaha can't offer the kind of competitive package that Ducati can at the moment, and that's absolutely right. You know, why if you're Martin, why would you why would you switch when you're basically on the same comp, um, the same bike as the the reigning world champion in a good team? You know, why would you switch that for Yamaha where they're kind of in a world of pain um, and they've had significant issues with their second rider? I guess you could also say Yamaha would look at uh, Bezeki. But again, you know, um, if you were to believe there was a good report in the Gazette de la Sport during the French Grand Prix from Paolo Ianeri where he was saying that Ducati's plan to keep Bezeki on the books is to promote them, or sorry, to promote him up to Pramac. Um, so it would be Martin and, and Bezeki there next year. And again, you know, a similar argument could be made for Bezeki in that why would you switch a race winning package which currently is taking you to the championship fight um, for a real unknown package Yamaha now Yamaha surely are only going to get better um, as the year goes on but um, you know I think the argument stands um, and, and if you kind of rule Martin and Bezeki out top rack is gone to BMW oh, who's who's left I mean do you start looking at Moto2 um, do you keep Franco Morbidelli? I mean, it's uh, it's less kind of clear cut. There's less a uh, less of a, a, a very obvious signing that that can be made there. Yeah, and I think what's interesting for me, Neil, is that one of the big things that we're hearing in the superbike paddock is that Digi is looking to move across to superbikes, and that's obviously because Grissini hasn't worked out for him. It's been a tough time for him. It looks like Arbelino is going to move up to MotoGP, probably with Grissini, but suddenly. If you're Yamaha and Martin doesn't want to to go to that bike or you're not able to bring in a rider, maybe you try and bring in Arbelino and you make him a factory rider, you make him well paid. And then you've got Quattararo and, and Arbo as your two riders. That could be an option. It's like I'm, I'm obviously looking at it from the outside of what we're hearing in the Superbike paddock about who wants to come over to Superbikes. But that seems to be one of the, the chips falling into place. Does it also have implications for Yamaha's superbike team? I mean, if they lose their former world champion, um, what kind of high-level replacement do they have for him? Um, and also, you know, coming back to, to BMW, as we know, there are two slots on the grid. Um, I just wonder, would Dorna be pursuing the German brand even more aggressively if they weren't already a sponsor and they weren't already present in their sister series? I mean, you have to imagine if say Superbike was still owned by Infront or the Flamini group, then maybe there'll be a more concerted effort to get in sort of from BMW on, on the MotoGP grid. I think it'd be fascinating to see that technology there. I mean, as Dave said, it would be a, a financial hiding to nothing. Um, but 
wow, I mean, it would be it would be curious. Well, BMW, don't forget, were offered the chance to take over all of Suzuki's entity for last year. So they didn't take up that opportunity and that would have reduced an awful lot of the costs, whether that's taken in all the trucks or just pit box equipment, whatever you're looking at. And they had the opportunity to do that and didn't take it. So I don't think that there's too much more of an incentive that you can throw at them to become a MotoGP manufacturer. And then suddenly that for them to then decide down the line, ah, do you know what, we'll actually just spend all that money ourselves, would be a bit of a surprise. My point exactly. I mean, you know, they were offered a, uh, you know, basically a free pass. Look, here's all of your infrastructure. Um, uh, go away, build a bike, and and you know, come and uh, come and race it. Uh, and they would have had one of the. Uh, they were all of those Suzuki engineers who they could have been using. You know, all of the all of the crew, all of the team, all of the staff. Uh, they they could have had it sort of as a job lot and. Um, uh, BMW weren't interested. You know, they, they they don't need to do it. If they needed to do it, they would have done it a long time ago. Just to go back as well, Ad, what you were saying about the rider lineups as well for superbikes, everything I've been told is it'll be Vandermark that stays at BMW, which puts Scott Redding on the market for someone else. Scott's manager will already been looking at different options there, but it's going to be tough for Scott to actually find something that pays well. And at the end of the day, he's not going to be going back to being a Ducati rider. He's not going to, well, potentially may not be kept on at BMW. Yamaha probably wouldn't be that keen because they want to bring up riders through their own ranks, which is where Domi Aguilar probably becomes the favourite for top rack seat at Yamaha. But myself and Gordo talked about it last week of where is that next potential superstar world champion coming from in superbikes? And it's actually quite difficult to find that rider right now without looking into the MotoGP paddock for the route of bringing in someone that would do what Bautista's done. And I think that's the big challenge for for everyone. But we did also see some other news, Adam, this week about uh, the MotoGP viewing figures as well. So the introduction of the sprint for this year has had a pretty big impact on things. Yeah, I think there's been an increase. I mean, Donna felt um, buoyed enough to issue a press release. Uh, Obviously, the sprint is something they're promoting heavily. In terms of, you know, what it's bringing to the show, uh, in terms of assets, I guess you could say. Uh, so we had a, you know, a press release saying, you know, records have surged in 2023, um, an increase in TV audiences by 27%, um, 51% on Saturdays, of course, when the sprint takes place. Um, you know, there's been a 40% increase in fans, but this is all on the back of what's happened um, in Le Mans, where there was, you know, as we said in the last podcast, an amazing attendance. Uh, fair play you know it's good to see there's been a lot of conjecture about whether MotoGP is actually in crisis and you know it's not as popular as it was and I'd say we are definitely in the post Valentino Rossi and uh, Maya is the wrong word but um, definitely within the throes of trying to rediscover a little bit of identity um, within MotoGP I mean for me it's quite interesting we're definitely in an Italian era with Ducati and their, their sort of prevalence on the grid and of course you know with Pekka Bagnai being world champion but um, you know, I think, you know, there's there there's a concerted effort to make noise that MotoGP is actually still pretty popular, guys. Yeah, the, the, the press release was interesting because there was no baselines given. Uh, uh, they say that there was a uh, 27% increase on weekend TV uh, audiences and a 51% increase on Saturdays. Um 
they don't say what they, which year they're comparing it to. Whether they're comparing it to last year, uh, we don't know what the figures were for last year. How the uh, how the figures were um, uh, sort of compared to the past. We don't know if this is an average of the ten. Uh, if this twenty seven percent increase is an average for the ten uh, against an average of the past ten years, or just last year, or whether last year was was a good year or a bad year for uh, for TV audiences. So it's a bit um, uh, to. Put it into context is difficult. However, I think it is encouraging that there are, uh, you know, that the figures audiences are increasing, that there is increased interest in it. Um, as you say, it's a, it, it's a Ducati era and it's going to be really interesting to see whether that translates to a much bigger crowd at Mugello than we saw last year. Yeah, it's a Ducati era, and we're just about to take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast. And when we come back after the break, we'll hear from Ducati CEO, Claudio Domenicali. Renthal Street, Chain, and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast, brought to you by Renthal Street. Adam, you've obviously had the chance to go over to Bologna to uh, sit down with Domenicali, but what was the what was the situation like over in Italy? Uh, I mean, first of all, Steve, it's it's great to have Claudio on the podcast because we were told, you know, he doesn't do many one to ones; uh, they're quite infrequent. I mean, we've seen him pop up at races, of course, both Superbike and MotoGP, and uh, last year was, of course, a milestone for Ducati in terms of their their achievements on track uh, but you know he doesn't really do many interviews so um, Dave and I were able to pre-prepare a list of questions you know about Ducati as a company as a brand also their racing efforts and we saved this interview one because there's a bit of a break in the calendar and two because Moto E just launched uh, you know the weekend before last in Le Mans so that was also one of the subjects that uh, we wanted to talk to him about and um, for me it was I mean, I've done the Ducati factory tour before, and it's always a little bit of a surprise to see how archaic, you know, the facility is there in Borgo Panagali. Um, you know, it's in, it's in a structure that was bombed in the war and rebuilt in 1946. And it's, it's always fascinating seeing the, uh, the assembly lines. Um, you know, they, they kind of churn out 200 bikes a day up to 300, like in high season. Um, and it was actually surprising that the tour guide that we had, um, inside the factory in the engine department, 85% of the staff they have there are women. And, um, the reason for that, and I quote, is that they have better attention to detail than men which I think is something, you know, the four of us already knew. Um, but to see it so starkly uh, displayed um, in, in a productive sense was um, a little humbling. Um, Dave and I then sort of, you know, after the interview with Claudio, we were guided towards the Ducati Museum. As Dave has already said on the podcast, you know, that was fascinating. And um, we were kind of entertained, Dave, weren't we, by um, Livio Lodi, who's like a 57-year-old historian um, for the brand, you know, a guy who's been sort of implicated with Ducati since he was a young man. And he seemed to be very much like a living encyclopedia when it comes to you know the whole Ducati range and it's a small space there but um you know and it's also curious that it's you know Ducati didn't build a sports bike until 1955 and then now look where they are but um you know Domenicali himself is a little bit part of the the furniture or institution I mean he's been at Ducati for three decades and he spent the last 10 years as CEO so he's a man who clearly knows a lot about the passion and um, a lot about the essence of Ducati. Uh, and it was, 
it was a good experience. We went into the offices, didn't we, Dave? And we were kind of shepherded into one room that was all locked off because they had had substantial rainfall and um, it had actually come through the roof and was leaking into the offices of some of the personnel. So that was, uh, yeah, it goes to show that behind some of the most exotic and modern motorcycling technology, there's often an unexpected uh, behind the scenes scenario. Yeah, I mean, the, all of the um, – because the, the the production lines, I mean, like there was a lot of quite modern equipment there as well. Um, they, you know, they put, the, they put their money where it matters. So, for example, the restaurant, because the restaurant was very good as well. Uh, but also uh, the, the, the production line, all that sort of stuff, the, 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 the um, stuff for check, you know, all of the equipment for actually checking the machinery, which was – uh, to make sure that it's all working, to make sure that the bikes actually, you know, don't have any problems after they are uh, after they are fully assembled, um, they uh, go through a you know a, a complete check, and that that was really really that was really really interesting. Livia Lodi, the museum curator, um, is fascinating not just because. I mean, when he's given the history of Ducati, he sort of like starts off almost uh, sort of at the beginning of the nineteenth, uh, at the beginning of the uh, of the twentieth century, giving you a history of the area, the the region, Emilia Romagna, because it's the centre of engineering and, and engineering excellence, and explaining how it all came around, which was re- which was fascinating. And I have a bit of a personal connection uh, to, especially to Bologna, because that's the birthplace of Giuliano um, Marconi. And my grandfather worked for Marconi, and my uh, in Chelmsford in the UK. And my uh, dad did a uh, an apprenticeship at Marconi, and that's where he me- he met uh, my mother. And so, like literally, without without Bologna, I would not exist. Without Marconi, I would not exist. So, uh, but you can blame an Italian for uh, for for me. Yeah, we certainly do, Dave, and they blame you for your lack of faith and. Tiramisu, but they do like your love of a, a coffee without milk throughout the course of the afternoon. So the, you, you, you kind of get a little bit of a comeback from them on that. But it's a great interview. It was great to get the opportunity, like Adam says, for us to sit down with Claudio and to hear his thoughts. So we'll play out the show with Ducati CEO Claudio Domenicali. Uh, Claudio, we're here in your meeting room. Um, surrounded by photography of Ducati icons, famous people. Um, and of course, this building, this brand is, is, is pretty immense. It's known worldwide. Uh, you've been here 30 years now, and the guys have told me it's 10 years as CEO. Can you just explain, you know, maybe pick one of your biggest achievements from this period? What are you most proud of? Uh, actually, it's, it's a complicated and complex question. Um, I, I, if I have just to pick one, uh, I think is the um, achievement of having uh, Ducati to to grow uh, and to be becoming something really uh, of, of a dimension that uh, uh, is very relevant above one billion euro turnover. It start to be a, a big company in this world uh, without losing uh, the core values, and so uh, the core values of uh, style, sophistication, performance, the passion for racing, uh, racing being so relevant. Uh, um, and so uh, it's, it's, it's uh, in my opinion, an achievement because when you grow uh, and then when uh, actually also the shareholder is it's, uh, interested in proper profitability of the company, it's possible that you lose a little bit uh, or even very much the focus. And, and uh, so we did not. 
and uh, also in the in the model range uh, uh, we are able to expand the model range a lot uh, without losing uh, the character of a Ducati. So kind of uh, rounding, uh, smoothing, uh, polishing. Uh, so now the bikes are generally much easier, uh, much smoother. Uh, it was super nice talking with uh, um, Alex Market at the end of the race in Portimao and, uh, and find out in his opinion how much uh, our bike is uh, uh, easier to ride, smoother, which actually is kind of uh, uh, the opposite of what we were 20 years ago, you know, in actually difficult bike to ride. And uh, and uh, and so now it's a, it's a, uh, this, I think, is a, uh, an important achievement. David and I were both in Madonna di Campiglio. I hope I pronounced that right. Almost, it's almost okay. Almost okay. <laughs> Madonna di Campiglio. Uh, okay. Okay. Right. I'll, I'll, hopefully next year I'll have okay. it. Um, it was good to see you celebrate, you know, what the brand have achieved on the track. But then, of course, having, you know, reaching the one billion turnover point is another significant milestone for Ducati. I just wondered, you know, with this growth and success, how, how difficult was that when we know in an international landscape in the world at the moment with supply lines and production costs, transportation costs, how, how difficult was that to achieve? Yeah, it was a kind of a roller coaster, I would say, last year, uh, because it's... Uh, uh, we had an incredible demand, uh, product, uh, uh, the model range we have never been uh, so strong. And so uh, the recognition of the progress we've made and the product we've developed were, were very clear. Uh, and on the other side, we've never been in such a kind of complicated situation with logistics and, and manufacture of many components, a semiconductor being first one, uh, the major one, but even uh, much more easy stuff like... Uh, um, forged aluminium or uh, steel tanks we we say uh, for some moment uh, some month in a very complicated situation in doing uh, uh, steel tanks because just uh, the boats uh, with steel and special steel uh, sometimes come from japan actually it took uh, twice the time it was normally needed so it required a lot of uh, um, uh, capability of uh, uh, quickly change direction uh, on a daily basis, uh, quickly reschedule production, uh, quickly find a new warehouse uh, in order to store motorcycle. And being the, the company very solid, we kept uh, manufacturing the bike, even if uh, it was not possible to sell them because it were not complete by missing a dashboard or an ECU. And so we, we, we arrived to store uh, more than 9,000 motorcycles, which is a a huge amount, uh, but that gave us the possibility as soon as the component arrived uh, to quickly put them in a the market. And so uh, our client, they had to wait, but they had to wait much less uh, that if just postpone production, because if postpone production, you lose this a lot in the factory, then it's not easy to recover. Uh, while if you have the bike in a warehouse, uh, it's much easier to go there, you pick up the bike uh, and you fit the new dashboard and, and then you sell it. Um, so was in terms of working capital and the, the capital invested was a big investment uh, and we are still recovering from that. Huh? But we are able to uh, release the pain as much as possible on the client and of course also to make a very good year in terms of final sales result. Thinking globally, how difficult is it to, to plan ahead or plan long term? Because... You know, you have emerging, what is your view of emerging markets? You know, production in India, Asia. I mean, it seems world economies are shifting quite quickly all the time. You may plan something big for South America and it doesn't quite come off. How difficult is it to balance all of that? Uh, actually, I think it's the most important part of the CEO uh, job. 
actually to look forward and uh, to to try to define what will be the future in five years, what will be in ten years, uh, what will be in twenty years, uh, which actually, of course, is a kind of uh, uh, gamble, and uh, uh, it's a little bit like the crystal ball, uh, but on the on the other part, uh, um, it is what uh, is needed to properly take direction. Um, <clears throat> I'm trying to um, listen as much as possible, learn as much as possible, travel, um, talk with people. Um, I have a very nice network of people. Network, I think, is uh, one of the most crucial parts because actually you exchange idea, information, uh, opinions, uh, and, uh, and then you try to kind of get feedback. And of course, we are um, a company based in Italy, but we are a very global company. We sell worldwide and we have... Uh, um, actually, our uh, national sales company in, in uh, uh, 15 countries around the world. And, and so um, it's very important to understand what China will do in the future. Uh, you name India. Uh, and of course, it's very complicated because it's the, we live in a very complicated world. And uh, um, to understand what will happen in 10 years uh, or, or to actually to have a clear opinion it's uh, it's you can have an opinion but to fix it is almost impossible so um things are changing quite quite quickly so again i think what it's making the difference is to be able to quickly change direction to be nimble uh so try to be lean as a factory try to actually uh um, be efficient and and to generate resource so to be profitable as a company in order to reinvest uh, in, in different sector, not just uh, not to put all the eggs in one basket. Uh, and that makes the company more resilient because uh, um, will be electrical bike come really, will be e-fuel, will be hydrogen. That is, for example, one of the big uh, discussion, you know, but you see even how much has been changed in the last uh, three weeks in Europe. Uh, actually, it was already like a, a decision made. Uh, IC engine just cut in 2035. Uh, and then actually now it's still the same, but uh, with the but, you know. So if you all are into the equation now, so everything is fully carbon neutral, it's being considered proper. And so that means that uh, internal combustion engine will not die. Then it's a matter of uh, uh, how much will be the price of e-fuel and so on. But it's a big change and you need to be prepared for that. And so this is how I interpreted uh, my, my role here as a CEO. Yeah, because how can you plan around government legislation if it's changing, you know, year to year or with a five-year prospect? And in a period when everything is changing. We seem to be in the middle of like an energy revolution almost where we're switching from carbon fuels to carbon neutral fuels and no one really knows what the future will be. So the, the, the human being... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, we are we are a little bit philosophical here, but looks like like a little bit crazy, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, if you are a passionate like I am about numbers, and you kind of uh, draw lines uh, not in years uh, but in centuries, uh, uh, is a little bit crazy and bizarre uh, what happened in the last two hundred years. Um, and so it, we live in a in a moment uh, which is. Um, I don't think there is a it is specific. It's just continuously accelerating. So uh, the slope of the lines, uh, um, which actually either being the number of people living in the earth uh, of the or the total energy consumption, 
or uh, uh, total water consumption. It's just uh, increasing the, the slope uh, constantly. Uh, and uh, that put a number of uh, big uh, um, element on a table. And so um, now everyone is focused on the uh, decarbonization of mobility. Um, but that's just one uh, of the big topics, you know. And so, of course, we are into manufacture of goods that use uh, fossil fuel. So uh, we have to take care of that part. Um, but there are a lot of other contributors, very big, with actually being, for example, uh, production of food, uh, which actually different foods are different, immense uh, in terms of uh, producing CO2, you know. Yeah. So, but it, that takes us very, very far, you know. <laughs> Claudio, in Madonna, in the celebration of the MotoGP and World Superbike Champions, we saw a heavy presence from Audi. Yeah. Um, I'm just, could you just explain to listeners or to readers, you know, how is the company standing in the Audi group? Um, you know, do, do you have to answer to people or can you, is it quite flexible there? How does it work? It's, it's a very uh, interesting example of uh, uh, controlling a company uh, by uh, giving the company a lot of freedom. Uh, with a, a lot of control, which actually seems uh, uh, counterintuitive, you know, um, because uh, um, I think they are very smart in actually um, helping us in getting more and more structure, so in getting the company more and more solid, um, actually not only in the finance part, but all the compliance stuff, uh, everything is about rules and procedures, so the company is getting more and more solid through the years, uh, while leaving uh, our interaction with clients uh, as free as possible uh, with the uh, totally 100% Italian uh, flavor. And so which okay. product we make, uh, uh, why we make that product, uh, how we relate with clients, uh, uh, this very friendly, almost family approach that make the Ducatisti so happy to stay with us, uh, uh, it's still uh, completely in place. Uh, um, and so, of course, it's sometimes complicated because this uh, solid part uh, it's about using also processes that are sometimes thought for a much bigger company and so uh, you get some slowdown in some part uh, but of course uh, it's you are slowing down by being more robust and so it's a, the price you have to pay uh, in order to be more solid um, where we actually uh, we are really continue doing good it's in the product development, uh, racing, uh, uh, and all the marketing part, uh, uh, it's, a, it's a, uh, completely independent. And uh, uh, of course, we align on the vision. And so uh, we align very clearly on the vision of the company. And so they are not, of course, Ducat is a very minor contributor on the finest part of the VW group, you know. And so it's most important for them that actually we make the brand shine. Uh, and shining even more in the future uh, and if possible to make the shinest brand uh, uh, between all brands uh, of two wheels this is our final goal you know uh, which means that we are not focused on actually increasing volume too much uh, we want to have uh, this as much as possible one-to-one -one relationship with our clients uh, and with us uh, uh, everyone that actually um, is a real connoisseur uh, and actually um love uh, to buy special things and so appreciate uh, when we use special materials, special technology and, and then of course it's differentiated in the range because uh, a monster may be a more standard motorcycle than a 
super leggera, of course. Uh, and so we have different, uh, um, let's say... So products to appeal to different yeah, people. Yes, yeah. yes. It's because um, you mentioned marketing and um, another facet in Madonna, you know, in your speech, you mentioned that Ducati is a brand that inspires passion and love amongst its fans. I mean, even myself as a young boy to wear a red T-shirt with that logo was quite special, um, quite exotic. I just wondered now how you feel about marketing the brand. Is it in a, in a generation where things are changing quickly, how people absorb media how they how you can get the message of the brand out if you're still aiming for a premium style image how important is marketing now to ducati yeah it's dramatically important and uh, uh, i'm a very big fan of marketing uh, i mean uh, the the good marketing so uh, forget what was happening 30 years ago in which actually uh, whoever were making uh, uh, was producing a, a, a washing machine powder uh, was making a lot of publicity saying that uh, this powder was the best one and it was not very relevant if it was or not, you know. So you just uh, um, were doing a lot of pressure on TV and that was mainly the media and that was the uh, the, the way of doing. The current time, uh, everything is very transparent. Uh, uh, there has been a lot of power move from the brands to the consumer and, and to the clients because actually uh, they uh, buy the product, uh, they use it, uh, and then they give their opinion on that uh, very openly on the web. And so either it is Facebook or Instagram or, or TikTok uh, or YouTube. Uh, there is no way to make a bad product uh, and to support it marketing. So because actually marketing is what the client do themselves. Uh, and so this is where we are so focused on actually creating uh, what we call brand promoter. And so to stay in contact with uh, all our clients uh, and to understand uh, what is their opinion. And actually, uh, we measure constantly their uh, willingness to recommend our product. And uh, uh, we are working on improving the product as much as possible, connecting with them, uh, making them part of the experience, uh, and actually being them our promoter. And so our marketing uh, expert, you know, because nothing better than a happy customer uh, is really credible. And uh, there is no way, actually, that if you have an unhappy customer, to stop in telling on the web. And so you will have, of course, always some unhappy because it's impossible that you make 100%. But actually, if you move from having 80% uh, happy and uh, 20 unhappy to 95 happy and 5% unhappy, of course, your marketing possibility grow a lot. And, and then for us now, marketing is this uh, uh, making the people feel special. So creating events, uh, attracting them uh, and feeling that uh, they are into, uh, if you want, as a part of a club, you know, uh, that uh, uh, care about a uh, uh, special motorcycle, but the motorcycle is only uh, at the center of the global world, uh, which is made by racing, uh, is made by the company, the museum, uh, the riding schools, uh, um, and, and all of that done with uh, this idea of doing uh, uh, it a, bit, a little bit better than average, let's put it this way. So our ambition to raise uh, the experience. One of the biggest promoters of your brand has been Gigi Delinia because he's managed to, you know, finally win another world championship and all the rest of it. Um, how, well, what was your role in recruiting him? How important has he been to the success to the success of Ducati? And you know, what's his strengths and weaknesses? Yeah, I mean, uh, I became managing director kind of ten years ago, and when I became uh, the, the head of the company. Racing was in a very 
poor situation. Yeah. Uh, it was just at the end of the Valentino Rossi period here. And actually, he left the company and uh, the team was very uh, um, down. Um, and also, the technical part was um, at the end of a period in which they tried many different things uh, and so they even lost the, the, the idea, you know? Um, and so, uh, when I came, I, I'm coming from racing. So, I... It was very difficult for me to see that situation. But in the last period, uh, uh, before becoming managing director of racing, I had a completely different uh, uh, management. I was uh, kept out uh, uh, for three years. Uh, and so uh, I, I missed completely the last three years of that part. And so I had almost very clear what needed to be done in order to fix it. And, and so having uh, one clear leader was... Uh, uh, the first most important one and so i look around and there were not many uh available and so this is why we met a uh, couple of times with gigi we did not need to make many meetings uh, and then uh, we find an agreement and then gigi started with us end of 2013 uh, and and then it took a while because actually you have to recover from from scratch he was very clever uh because he, he understood immediately that there were a lot of good people here um but without a, a clear direction. And so he took only one person from his previous uh, uh, job, and he, he was able to make uh, uh, all the people that were here uh, working properly. And actually, um, most of the people that actually won the first title are still here uh, and have been uh, evaluated by Gigi. So I think that this has been a very important value of, of Gigi. The other one is... Uh, uh, to have a clear idea of what to do. He's a very clear leader, uh, clear direction. Um, the, the, and then as all of us, as uh, also himself some negative, uh, which actually is a, a little bit part of the, you cannot have the positive without the negative. So it's sometimes a bit difficult uh, um, to work because it's very uh, uh, opinionate. So uh, if you have a different opinion, actually it's a kind of... Um, uh, a bit more complicated, uh, but but this is, is is part of the of the thing, and we we work quite well uh, in this year, and uh, uh, we are able also um, to continuously take together the most important decision, and uh, um, to guide the team in the proper in the proper direction. Why does Ducati go racing? I mean, what obviously it's a massive marketing branding. Because Ducati is, you know, racing is central to Ducati. But what kind of technologies are you, what kind of things are you learning from racing in MotoGP, racing in World Superbikes? What kind of technologies are being transferred into the bikes you actually sell? Uh, the, the, the big advantage of uh, uh, MotoGP compared to Formula One is that the bike is uh, reasonably similar to what you sell, uh, while the Formula One car is completely uh, another thing. Um, so there is a lot that we can learn and carry on. Uh, the Panigale is the first perfect example. Uh, the engine of the Panigale is a, a very close uh, interpretation of the, uh, the, the core principle of the engine of the MotoGP we did in 2015. That was the, the, the first bike uh, that actually, uh, uh Gigi Linea thought uh, as a global, uh, global uh, project. Uh, 
um, the counter-rotating crankshaft, uh, you name one, uh, was part of that. Uh, uh, the whole layout with the cylinder, uh, the, the, the general frame layout and dimension. So uh, there is a lot, and, and we learn a lot in, uh, uh, in MotoGP how to make uh, um, a bike to behave uh, in an easy way, uh, which seems a little bit strange because you say MotoGP is very complicated and difficult, but the more you are into racing and the more you learn uh, that putting a rider in a, in a, at ease uh, and uh, stress him as less as possible is very relevant. And uh, uh, you said before that actually Pecco looked like uh, he was playing uh, with, uh, with the bike. Uh, and this is when you reach the perfect state, you know, uh, on which the rider confidence is so high and the effort you need to put uh, in riding uh, is not dramatic and so is kind of being able to change direction pretty quickly is able to turn in where he wants uh, uh, the engine is not uh, aggressive and it does not put the, the, the old the whole chassis uh, into problem uh, um, and and this uh, have been a lot of this concept uh, uh, transferring to production motorcycle and so the current Panigale and Modiglia 23 uh, it's far easier uh, to ride uh, on the racetrack than a bike of uh, just six, seven, eight years ago. For everything we've learned, uh, um, electronic, take the, the traction control, uh, all the traction control of the Panigale uh, derived from the software we developed in MotoGP when it was the open software, uh, which actually now we cannot do anymore, and that's a limitation. Uh, it's always a fine balance between leaving the championship open in order to develop technology or try to control the cost. And uh, but the whole traction control that you buy now in a Panigale, we we give uh, to the um, uh, ECU uh, manufacturer that is the engine management system, but we give them as a kind of a black box. So it's our own code uh, that we code, and then uh, when it's compiled, uh, they just need to give input and output. So we have all the knowledge of the strategy. Uh, it's uh, speaking of from going from racing to production. Obviously, we have Moto E. I was at the presentation of the Moto E in Modena last year, which was fascinating. You, there you talked about the different engines for the future, uh, um, zero carbon fuels, what you were saying earlier, electronic or uh, you know electric bikes. How do you see Moto E? Um, are we going to see road bikes coming from this? Do you see it as a development platform for... For production and how do you do you think that electric bikes are the future or do you think it's going to be more open uh we we, we do moto e basically because we want really um to understand uh, what are the options uh, what is the potential which are the limits uh, um, of a full electrical motorcycle um, with the current technology and with the technology will be available in five years uh, and with technology will be available in ten years um, and uh, we still consider that uh, as a kind of a, a learning uh, laboratory development of uh, uh, understanding uh, and developer skill because it's very difficult to talk uh, um, just making a generic statement you know and so in order to understand um, what would be the value of an electrical motorcycle to give to a final client uh, uh, you need to try to develop it uh, and to push the boundary. Um, and so to try to understand in the world uh, 
what are the best battery, uh, what then are the problem, how we need to cool the battery, can we make it air cooled, do we need to make liquid cooled, how is the engine, do we make the engine water cooled, do we make oil cooling, uh, so there are a lot of options and uh, it's fascinating because it's uh, uh, the jumps, now we have the, the bike that we supply to the rider for uh, this championship that actually has just been tested in, in, in Herets. Um, but we are already thinking the next generation. And the uh, next generation is already a big jump uh, because it's, it's different from the internal combustion engine, which is very refined technology. And uh, one year from the other, you just polish it, you know? So uh, while there, there are big jumps. Uh, um, on the other side, uh, uh, the chemistry of the battery, it's uh, with the lithium, it's kind of getting close to a certain limit. Uh, so it's now talking about solid state battery, uh, which have a very interesting potential. Uh, and so this is very helpful being part of the group because um, we are in contact with the, um, uh, it's called Center of Excellence of VW in Salzgitter. And actually we, we make meeting with them, our technical people make meeting with them. And uh, this Center of Excellence is uh, in contact because VW Group is shareholder of uh, QuantumScape, which is a, a one US uh, um, company which actually they are developing this solid-state battery technology. So, uh, and we could, we are discussing if we can then use for the Moto E, and so there it's an interesting uh, increase of energy density, which actually is the still the main problem of the, of the battery today, which energy density is not fantastic, and so um, the weight of the motorcycle uh, have to be a compromise between a certain range, so either you limit the range too much or you increase the weight, uh, so it's a little bit of a compromise. One of the problems which motorcycling has is, in general is that its motorcyclists are getting older. Do you see racing as a way to attract younger people into motorcycling? Uh, or does that have to come from a different direction? I mean, look, we need young motorcyclists to take over from old motorcyclists like me. So, uh, again, another uh, big problem. Uh, because... Uh, um, a motorcycling, a uh, motorcyclist is getting older uh, for, for two reasons, uh, one of which is, is a bit difficult to, to manage because uh, um, if you take a European country, uh, most of the European country have the population which is getting older. Um, so we are just missing kids. Um, so uh, then if you're, you can take a percentage of the existing kids, but if the kids are not existing, uh, it's, it's kind of complicated, <laughs> not just for motorcycle, but for everyone, you know. Uh, and it really takes uh, actually to move into different geography. And so US, China, uh, where actually this situation is different. Um, and so to, it's important to expand this also out of Europe, uh, which mainly for big motorcycle was used to be the center. Um, racing is very relevant on that. And we have quite a, a number of um, uh, activities together with Dorna in order to increase uh, um, the ability to talk uh, with young people. Uh, and it's an ongoing process. Um, in Portimao, there were a lot of things new, uh, which actually is part of uh, getting the sport more uh, open, in a way, you know. Um, on, on Italy, it was uh, uh, the, the first sprint race, uh, it was live on YouTube. 
to give to give, give us something tangible, you know, and actually to be present on the media, which is actually more um, achievable uh, for young people. And and uh, Formula One is already doing a lot on that, uh, and is getting good result. Um, uh, so there are young people. Women is the other part, which actually we 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 uh, would love to actually talk in a more uh, direct way. And so even though there are action action to be made. Uh, um, and, and but not only so racing yes, but also we will see uh, products uh, in the next uh, two three years in our model range, which are especially uh, focused on uh, younger people, uh, in order to attract them into the brand, and then to be possible to make them grow into the brand. Claudio, just two more questions. Um, KTM, you know, European's biggest manufacturers, and they have a split between street bike and off road. We saw Ducati present the Desert X. Uh, we hear about interests in dirt bikes and MXGP. Um, what is this about for the company? Is this just about diversifying the product range even more? Uh, yes, and uh, the, the, the Desert X, you name it, it's uh, um, something we never did before. Uh, this uh, um, Enduro bike, very capable, going off-road, uh, long distance. Uh, um, <clears throat> and we will do more in this direction, you know. Uh, which is something that for sure attracts younger people, uh, people more uh, passionate about uh, really proving also themselves uh, uh, physically uh, and uh, gives uh, the use of this motorcycle a lot of reward uh, um, also um, going off-road. So for sure that is part of our strategy in the future. Um, lastly, I mean, do you see Ducati now in 2023 as a brand that takes pride in styling still or more innovation? Because it seems like you guys are more proactive of what you're giving the consumer. Oh, yeah. Um, I, we, we are not deciding between the two because we see ourselves, we define ourselves this kind of, uh, we call it magical combination between uh, style and, and technology. Uh, and so... Uh, this is Ducati, so it's a, it's a very nice-looking motorcycle, very polished, refined, uh, a very uh, long time thought uh, about the balance of the volume of the motorcycle, because we look at that not just as a motorcycle, but as a, as a kind of a piece of art. Uh, uh, but at the same time, we want to be at the forefront of technology, and so. Uh, this is why we invest so much. Uh, racing is part of that, but also out of that. Uh, um, and we think it's a very uh, nice positioning for the future because uh, uh, there is a, a growing uh, number of people um, that can uh, uh, take advantage of having a, a, a better status, a better actually uh, spending potential worldwide. Uh, and uh, the more you have spending potential, the more Normally, you care about uh, uh, um, nice thing, okay? So either it's art uh, or it's home furniture or it is uh, 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 cars. Uh, and, and so uh, also these people appreciate uh, uh, motorcycles that are not just standard, okay? So we want to be very far from the standard. And on the other side, um, we think that the, the, when you buy a Ducati, you should actually be surprised by... Uh, how easy it is to be emotional uh, and how safe it is. And, and uh, you can only get that through technology. Uh, otherwise, uh, you cannot have a performance motorcycle which is easy to ride. Uh, it's a kind of uh, uh, an impossible compromise. 
but uh, you can solve that with technology. Either is uh, uh, adjustable suspension, uh, traction control, coronary ABS, the radar, all of that uh, make possible that actually you ride the Panigale on the track, uh, 220 horsepower, uh, but in a very safe way, you know. Claudio, thank you ever so much for your time. Um, best of luck on the track, both series this year. Yeah, yeah. You've got it's going to be well. Uh, you can't improve. You can only <laughs> you can only match your achievement. Yeah, yeah but it would be nice, you know. So we are. <laughs> let's say let let's try hard to match achievement. Yeah, off to a good start anyway. Okay, thank, thank you. you, thank you, thank you. Grazie, grazie.